0: listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Everybody who normally sits in these pews is apparently at the folk festival. <laughs> this evening I, I want to again focus us on the reading from 2 Corinthians, partly because of what it proclaims about the nature of weakness and power, partly because, without hearing it in the context of Paul's larger letter, it can sound just a bit weird. I know a person in Christ, Paul writes, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Frankly, without getting a sense of where this is all coming from, you'd be tempted to think that God only knows what Paul is talking about. But if you back up just a chapter in this letter, you discover that Paul is concerned to have heard that other teachers have arrived in Corinth claiming to be the true representatives of the Jesus movement, but actually bringing to them what Paul calls another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. He refers to them as super-apostles, and that's not meant to be particularly flattering. It isn't clear exactly what the different gospel they're bringing might be, But it does seem that whatever it was, they intended it to to replace or to supplant Paul's teaching. We also know from other places in the Corinthian letters that the Corinthians were really very attracted to spiritual gifts, to speaking in tongues, to prophesying and visions and the like. Paul had addressed this in his first letter to them, saying, in effect, that while such gifts do have a place, and while he himself had, in fact, spoken in tongues, there is what he calls a more excellent way. We just sang it, actually. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Though a person might speak with great human learning, or even in the ecstatic tongues of a religious experience, if it doesn't come with love, it's utterly hollow. Paul's been trying, in other words, to challenge the Corinthian Christians to place far less emphasis on things grand and intriguing and emotionally intense and outward and to really focus back on Jesus and his claim on us to love. So it's quite possible that these other teachers, the super-apostles, have arrived and tried to place the emphasis back on things like tongues and gifts and visions, which would explain why Paul is suddenly referencing a mystical and spiritual experience that he'd had 14 years earlier. "'I know a person in Christ,' he wrote, "'who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. "'Whether in the body or out of the body, "'I do not know. God knows. "'And I know that such a person, "'whether in the body or out of the body, "'I do not know. God knows, "'was caught up into paradise.'" and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. I know a person, he says, but that's just a kind of a rhetorical device to speak about his own self, his own experiences. He wants them to know that when it comes to the mystical and spiritual experiences, he's got a pretty darn good pedigree But he doesn't want it to be all about Paul and Paul's experiences. He doesn't want them to to try to land him up on a pedestal as a kind of super apostle. So he rhetorically distances himself from that by using this I know a person phrase. Then, just a few verses later, he says he doesn't want to boast about it or make a big deal about it. "...so that one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations." They were top-drawer revelations, a real, you know, barn-burner of a religious experience. But The gospel isn't to be about any one person's spiritual experiences. No, rather it's to be about Christ and what Christ has done for the whole of the world. And that experience had happened 14 years ago, Paul says, which means it happened after his life in God had been transformed on the Damascus Road, But before he'd written any of his letters, even before he'd set out on his first missionary journey, he was still in formation and transformation as a follower of Jesus when he had that powerful experience, and it was clearly part of what had shaped him. He doesn't entirely understand it, of course. He's not even clear as to whether it had been a a dream-like visionary experience or an actual physical bodily one. But he was given a glimpse of the world beyond this world. He's hesitant to even speak about it, both because he's not wanting to boast or claim that spiritual superhero status But also because what he saw and heard are things that no mortal is permitted to repeat. That's his phrase. It's almost as if Paul is saying that it was just too big, too much to be captured in human words. And certainly not something that he will ever wield as a a way of claiming power. And So... Bishop Tom Wright comments, Paul's underlying point is clear. You, Corinthians, you shouldn't be asking this kind of question, trying to rank me with other people and their experiences. If you do, I will only say that, yes, these things have happened, but that the real point was that I had to learn humility, to understand that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And this is the point in tonight's reading where Paul begins to speak of being afflicted by what he calls a thorn in the flesh. Now it's clear that this thorn in the flesh didn't come to him from God, but rather from the Satan, the adversary who wishes always to deny what is good and right and true. Yet it would seem God can even put that to work could work with what the adversary does. And so, this thorn in the flesh is used to keep Paul from becoming too elated, too overblown, getting his head too swelled over his own spiritual or religious self. Now, he never says in the letter what the thorn was. Could well have been a a physical malady of some sort. The biblical scholars have speculated endlessly, of course, Something to do with his vision. There's some evidence for that. Maybe migraine headaches or, or, or depression. It might have been purely an emotional or spiritual struggle he was living with. Whatever it was, Paul would rather have lived without it. And so he prayed. He prayed to have it taken away. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, he writes. And here, Bishop Wright comments. Paul prayed three times about this, says to the Corinthians, asking that it be removed. And the Corinthians, as they're reading, are no doubt expecting him to log this as a great answer to prayer story of which they could be proud. Instead, Paul reveals that the answer was no. Come on, Paul. Give us a victorious miracle story here. No? Well, actually the answer was more than no. Because what he says the Lord said to him was, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Now there's a couple things at work here that we should really note as a Christian community. Prayer for relief from some affliction is answered by, My grace is sufficient for you, which stands as a reminder that prayer does not function like a request line. You don't dial in or punch in your request and automatically get it. Prayer always does its work, but the answer may well be, I am with you, I will sustain you, I will be present with you. My grace is sufficient for you to carry this burden. Secondly, that extraordinary line, power is made perfect in weakness, a complete subversion of all conventional understandings of power. I mean, had you spoken that to Caesar... In that day, or to Herod, or to Pilate. Or were you to speak that to any of the leaders of the G7? They would look at you as if you were mad. Power is not perfected in weakness. Weakness knocks the feet out from underneath power, right? And yet it's a subversion. And what else should we expect from a Christ? who brings in the kingdom of God and defeats the power of sin and death precisely by what? By dying. His death, the perfect weakness. Tonight, we mark the Feast of St. Benedict. It actually falls on the 11th, but we always move it and, and make some mention of it to the closest Sunday. Always Folk Festival Sunday, it turns out. I think it's important to note that Benedict knew a few things about how weakness and vulnerability and smallness and humility can become, in God's strange way, places of that deeper power that is the inbreaking kingdom of God. Keep death before you daily. He wrote in his community's rule, Keep death before you daily, not in some morbid, life-denying way, but rather to learn to be mindful of our own mortality, our own fragility and weakness. And in doing that, in understanding our fragility, being mindful of our mortality and our weakness, we are open to a deeper grace— the one that is sufficient, and to an awareness that none of us are meant to be religious superheroes, doing it all on our own steam and by our own volition. Fear not your weaknesses, people of God. Fear not your weaknesses, for they are held in tenderness by our God and carried together in community as members of Christ's body. My grace, God's grace, Christ's grace, is sufficient for all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church, or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.